0: But what I keep hearing from people is the very fact that this has got so out of hand is evidence of why it is necessary. Um, Every other university in the province has managed to keep their students in class, or in the case of the equally bitter but much shorter strike at Concordia University managed to get back to the table back to a settlement within about nine days. It's only at the University of Lethbridge that Uh, supposed government headwinds have stopped us from even talking for weeks.
1: The Forgotten Corner podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account. Patreon.com backslash ForgottenCornerPod, or visit our website ForgottenCornerPod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory. Traditional lands of the Sixika, Kainai, Pakani, Stony Nakota, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor, acknowledge, and acknowledge that we are on the Metis Nation within Region Three. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. And if you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from across the country, you can always click on the link that we provide in our show notes. Hi, my name is Scott Schmidt and I am uh, your co-host normally alongside co-host Jeremy Appel from uh, from Calgary but he is uh, he's off today he can't couldn't make it this morning so uh, we're making editor and producer Mo Cranker talk to me a little bit today Mr. Mo Cranker how are you today bud I am doing quite well Scott how are you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. We should tell people that this is Jeremy's one episode suspension for taking two months to deliver to mail out the swag to everybody. But uh, we were uh, getting some tweets and some messages that it's finally arrived for people. So uh, if you're one of those uh, lucky top tier patrons who sent us who got asked for your address, uh, and you don't have it yet, let us know and send us that address so we can get that sent out. But um but yeah it looks really good i've got a whole pile of it sitting beside me here that uh, got emailed up to my house so i'm gonna go on like a sticker spree around medicine hat and uh get a whole bunch of people to look at the logo of our podcast and think oh that looks really cool and then listen to it and be like god damn it's sucked in by a political podcast and left-wing political podcast right so uh, what that? what's that left-wing propaganda that's that's right. We lost him as soon as we lost half the city. As we as soon as we read the land acknowledgement, unfortunately. So <laughs> this is where we live. But uh, this is a good reason. This is a good time to not have a big banter before the show starts today, because our guest today is uh, really doing us a huge favor of being here. Because not only is uh, he in the middle of a pretty uh, uh, highly covered. Uh, labor dispute. He's also dealing with uh, a little tiny boat of the uh, COVID that each and every one of us seems to have had at some point in all of this. So we really appreciate it. So on that note, uh, Dan O'Donnell is the president of the University of Lethbridge Faculty Association. And uh, unless you're uh, not living in Alberta at all, you probably know that the University of Lethbridge Faculty Association is been on strike for about four weeks now i'll get a clarification on that when we start to say hi uh so but we have a lot to chat with him about today and uh mr o'donnell welcome to the show
0: thanks very much
1: appreciate you coming here now our listeners know and and uh when we bring somebody on before we get too far into their um the expertise or the situation that they're here to talk about, we kind of need to hear a little bit about their life story. And I've sort of been looking a little bit at your past uh, as best I can from what the old internet tells me. And I'm seeing things like used to teach at Yale and such. And uh, I, so I'm really interested in hearing this story as to how uh, you went from growing up in Toronto in a university family, as you said, um, to, you uh, bouncing around and landing in the, uh, in the University of Lethbridge in little old Southern Alberta. So uh, can you give us a little bit of that life story? Like I said, I'll start you off. You were uh, grew up in Toronto.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, it, my story is actually pretty typical for a lot of uh, the faculty at the University of Lethbridge or frankly, any uh, university pretty much in the world. Uh, it's an extremely competitive uh, international labor market. Um, so I started out in Toronto, grew up there. My father and mother are both, uh, from Glasgow and moved to Toronto, uh, for a job actually for my father was a professor of physics at the university of Toronto. Um, and like people nowadays came on a temporary contract and finally got a job. Uh, my mom was a teacher and then I, I grew up in Scarborough, uh, in a very, very international neighborhood, you know, Toronto was just changing in those days, uh, my best friend was the only kid in the class whose parents hadn't been born outside of Canada uh, when I was going through grade school um, and then went to Toronto uh, University. Of Toronto was an undergraduate. It's got a very, very strong medieval program. And so did early medieval English Beowulf, that kind of thing, uh, went to Yale for my Ph.D. and uh, did my Ph.D. on Old English and manuscripts. Um, And as part of that, I took a couple of courses in old Irish in Ireland and met my wife there, uh, who's a Dutch linguist um, and uh, was doing old Irish at the time, but she now does Blackfoot uh, here. and then we bumped around a little bit. Uh, we had a rule, the best job wins. And so for a while, she had the best job. And then for a while, I had the best job. And then ultimately, we ended up uh, both getting positions here. Um, we were hired away from, uh, well, my wife was working at a, a university in York. And I was working at the University of York. Uh, and then we were uh, we were hired here quite a while ago now. In uh, 1997 is when I came. And then my wife started here, I think, four or five years later. Um, and then since then basically have been working initially in old English uh, and medieval studies and uh, increasingly over the years, a lot more in terms of uh, research data, open access, uh, how research publication is uh, done and and how we get the maximum value out of it. And the interaction of universities to the community, their value proposition, uh, a large number of things just about universities um, and so that that's where I am now. And then, for the last uh, probably close to eight years, I've been involved in the faculty association. Uh, initially as chief negotiator, I did two rounds, two and a half rounds of uh, negotiations, um, and then uh, this past year as president.
1: So let let me t- ask you to we'll, we'll back you up a little bit because you, I want to hear what got like what was the reasoning behind your specific uh the 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 old english root like how does someone decide that and obviously you grew up in an academic household so it's not shocking that you might sort of find an obscure uh field that a lot of us wouldn't think to ever pursue but why specifically uh language and old english and that
0: kind of thing uh that's a great question uh probably a couple of reasons um one of them is uh you know, childhood sort of uh, parent pleasing, I suppose, in a certain sense. I was always an English major um, and old English is really, really hard English and my dad couldn't do it. So uh, it was something then that uh, was, I found that it really used, um, let's say both sides of my training in the sense that there's a very uh, structured component to learning Latin or uh, other old, old languages, dead languages. And um, philology is the study of of the linguistics, the manuscript culture, the cultural remains of a language, uh, you know, touches on archaeology. And that kind of work is very exacting, uh, except in a humanities way. And so I really liked the combination of the humanities. So the idea that I was writing essays, that I was thinking through what things meant, uh, what their values were, uh, working in a thesis-driven uh, research environment as opposed to a hypothesis-driven thesis uh, research environment, and yet you could be right and you could be wrong, which I thought was very appealing uh, at the beginning of my career. And you know, like a lot of smart uh, young people, I thought it was really nice to be able to prove that I was right on something, and so it really attracted me at the beginning.
1: I understand that feeling. I get. I, I like that one a lot, where you're just like, yeah. Um, now, not to get too t- off topic of where we're going to go today, but I'm just curious when you when you're a when you're a, a student in a, a, a of language, and it becomes something that becomes your passion. Does the evolution of things like slang and sort of uh, the, the short speak that we have now and there, does that does that fascinate you or, or infuriate you or somewhere in between? Like, as you see that, do you think, oh, man, like the beauty is gone or do you does that sort of appeal to you as we continue to evolve the language?
0: It's fascinating. In fact, the the core of my work, uh, when you're doing Germanic philology, like I was doing, uh, I am doing, the core of that work depends on the fact that uh, language changes over time. So we actually just had a kind of Twitter exchange with one of my colleagues from the music department where he was wondering what the past tense of tweet was. And uh, you know there was a kind of very involved academic joke about how if tweet is how they said it in old English, then the past tense, would have been twat, but nowadays it would have been more twat, uh, and we would have been saying twite. Um, and so over time, these things change, you know uh what is considered slang uh, at one point is not considered slang at another point and mistakes are really interesting as well uh there's a cartoon circulating on twitter right now about the strike which i'm very very grateful to to uh slaughterhouse lou um about uh the joke uh but he's using the second person form where he really should be using the third. Um so over time you know these things change um finding the mistakes is fun uh my dialect from toronto uh i make a number of mistakes uh in my english so i use uh you know um less instead of fewer when i'm counting um i do i have a whole bunch of things like that i believe that i use uh if i was you as opposed to if i were you if i were if, you yeah yeah even if, if I, I was I, you oh shoot yeah. i did i say that too Yeah, so that's, even though I know that historically that's a subjunctive and it should be were, um, things change over time. So that's just really fascinating. And I I will say to put all of your listeners at ease, there is nothing to fear for the decline of English in text speech or uh, Twitter speech. That's just how that stuff goes. People have been complaining about that every single generation since the dawn of mankind. Uh, in fact the way you know you're an adult is you think kids speak, speak sloppy <laughs>
1: that's fair that's fair in fact I actually wrote like I think I could pinpoint the moment in my life where I became that guy and I was like wow I was never gonna be that guy you yeah. know but I think it was right around the time that they started like where I have no idea. The, the new one now is that's so based I'm like I have I can't keep up. So, anyways, I'm I'm definitely old at this point. We laughed when you said less or fewer because that's a like a running joke that has Mo and I have had for years uh, from the newsroom. And I would imagine I would be afraid for you to read my writing because you'd probably find all kinds of mistakes. But little things like that are definitely pet peeves of mine. People uh, overusing the word that, like we say that 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 in speech all the time, but when we write it, it just Anyway, we're, I, I have one, t-
0: I have one tip for you. Uh, sure. I, I was taught this by an undergraduate professor and I've used it with success. And that is when you sit down on an airplane and you've got a chatty neighbor, tell them you're an English professor. Uh, Cause then about nine times out of 10, they'll say, Oh, I better watch my grammar then. And if you go, yep. Uh, they won't say anything for the rest of the flight
1: that's fantastic actually I'm gonna start using that because I've had people be intimidated just at the idea that I'm an editor but I'm like I don't have any fancy degree in this I just happen to know the rules of Canadian press you know like yeah. there's a huge difference yeah. so I imagine being able to uh well people get intimidated by academia all the time which is hilarious but so anyways I well speaking of academia you said about eight or nine years ago you got involved in the in faculty association and then a president for the last year, which is obviously great timing for becoming the president. Had labor in this, and when you got into, had labor been something that was on your mind, had the, or what, I guess, what led you to joining and being involved in the faculty association in the
0: first place? Uh, to be honest, I was asked just out of the blue, um, I think that we'd had uh, some trouble in the negotiating team and uh, it'd been a long negotiations and problematic at the time, as I understand it. And um, I, as I remember, they had an interim uh, chief negotiator who wasn't able to continue. And so they just asked me if I'd be willing to take over as uh, chief negotiator. And so I did. Um I'd never done it before. I thought it was really interesting to see what it would be like. And uh, obviously a a skill that you don't necessarily practice much as an English professor. So I have to say it was probably more uh, an opportunity to try out a new skill as part of our uh, required duties. So uh, professors are required in my particular track to spend 40% of their time research, 40% of their time uh, teaching, and 20% on service. I mean, that gets adjusted right now. I'm doing about 50% service. Um, and so for my 20% service, I thought, why not try something new? There was some training involved. Uh, I, I got to, uh, try out a completely different kind of skill and I really did enjoy it. I, I sort of thought I might enjoy it because, um, Just before I was hired at the University of Lethbridge, I worked as a political operative in the the UK for the Liberal Democrats, right in the first Tony Blair election. And I really loved that. And it had surprised me because it's so different from the kind of careful writing you do in academia, the sort of thinking, how can you make messages uh, popular? How can you win converts is not what you normally do in academia. And so I thought maybe it might be nice to try returning to that. Turned out it really was. It's a very different kind of thinking from, from my academic work. And so it was just, it was, I'm afraid not actually a great, uh, come to labor moment. It was really, uh, Oh, that sounds interesting. And <laughs> I wonder how I do at it, but that's okay. I mean,
1: once you're in there, right. I would imagine some of that other stuff kind of snuck yeah. in. And so before we get to the current strike, um, how was the evolution of the relationship between the association and the and the university in your time has this has there been breaking points before of is this the first strike in that time and then is this the uh, closest to uh, before that had you gotten close these kinds of things where yeah. where was that relationship and sort of when did the fracture uh,
0: happen in your mind Well, we actually just did a survey of retired faculty uh, to see how far back uh, some of the problems that we're experiencing right now go. Um, The current job action, and it's a lockout as well as a strike, is uh, predicated on three themes, we feel, parity, equity, and respect. And respect has been by far the the biggest issue that we've been hearing from faculty members. So we asked retired members, how far back does that go? And uh, the answer was a long time. Um, We didn't have anybody refer to a golden age of uh, faculty administration uh, collegiality. Um, And so this ranges back now 30 odd years, uh, 35 years uh, were people's memories. And one member told me that they actually think it goes all the way back to, we had a president uh, resign in the face of faculty pressure about, I believe 35 years ago now. Um, But the University of Lethbridge historically has had very, very long tenure in senior administrators. And so that's not actually that long in terms of careers. Um, Our our previous provost, but one, so the person who was the provost immediately before the current provost, um, had been in po- uh, power as provost for about 15 years, had been hired by uh, the provost uh, before him, also in power for 15 years. That's us back now to that time. So basically two provosts ago. Um, our chief financial officer uh, seems to have come into her office about the same time, just after uh, that that resignation. I'm uh, not 100% sure when she began. It was quite a while ago. Um, and it's two presidents ago, three presidents ago, maybe. And so I think what we're what what's happened is that's had knock on effects of uh, an attempt to try and avoid faculty governance, uh, collegial governance that might impede uh, administrative free hand in, in how things are run. And it has certainly been my experience over those eight years that I've been involved in the Faculty Association, been at the university 25 years and and had other experiences before that, that would say this has never been a university, at least in my 25 years here, where there's been a real emphasis on trying to take advantage of the power of having a room full of uh, PhDs that you've recruited from all over the world. And much more a sense that um, we need to keep this group under control or else chaos will arise. Again, only my impression, but it is my impression ever since I got here.
1: When you took over the role a year ago, ish, right? It's been a year. Did you, was this already, like, did you see this coming already? Like, how, was this exact sort of action uh, something that was already being bandied about?
0: I, I bandied about is maybe a strong word for it. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I was chief negotiator at the beginning of this round, and that was two alpha presidents ago. So this has been going on for quite a while. I'm the third alpha president since these negotiations started. Um, and I was the chief negotiator for, I think, the first nine months. Uh, Uh, maybe almost a year of the negotiations, in fact, probably the first year of negotiations and the first uh, nine to 10 months after our contract expired. And um, so, you know, we knew that negotiations were not moving very quickly. Um, We uh, talked to the other faculty associations in the province and nationally, and so we're aware that negotiations were going extremely slowly in Alberta. Um, We weren't really aware of the degree to which our administration was refusing to settle articles at a pace much different from the other universities. So, you Mount Royal and U of A have both, uh, well, now settled, but in both cases before their final mediation had settled somewhere around about 55 articles of language, uh, you know, individual contractual pieces each, whereas we'd settled two uh, in, you know, 700 days now. Um, And so I don't think that was obvious to us that that things were going that slowly at our table compared to others. But we did know that stuff was going slowly, we did know that um, we might have to prepare for a strike or a lockout. Um, And we did know that we needed, uh, you know, to try and settle to to try and get them to the table, uh, to try and find ways of actually talking. Uh, But if that wasn't going to work, have some kind of backup plan.
1: So when it was four weeks ago sort of the actual strike lockout happened which chicken their egg here like which one of those happened first did the faculty association go on strike and then they say well you're locked out anyway
0: or what? yeah it's five it's actually five weeks we just started our fifth week okay. um the uh yeah the the way this works in the province is um we got to the formal mediation stage Uh, And that was quite an exercise as well. You have to have something known as an essential services contract in place in order to do that. Uh, And it took a year uh, to get there um, and a bad faith bargaining complaint on our part. And then about a half hour before the meeting, uh, the management settled that with us. uh, and We withdrew our complaint. Um, And that happened, I think in November, late October, early November. Um, And before that's in place, then there's no sticks or deadlines or anything that you can use to really enforce deadlines. And a problem that we've been having has been uh, management either not showing up or showing up unprepared. Uh, We really noticed that in mediation, for example, they brought us to uh, informal mediation. They didn't actually tell us that they'd done that. Two days later, we heard from them that they'd started informal mediation processes with us. Um, But really... because yeah. And,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong here. I felt like at some point they like that they're essentially claiming that you used that mediation as a sort of almost a
0: springboard to strike. Like it was just. No. Yeah, no, the process. So the the, the law in this is uh, you can have informal mediation at any time. It's exactly the same structure as formal mediation, except there's no uh, deadlines involved and there's no consequences for not really participating or doing very much in it. Uh, formal mediation, you can do when you have this ESA, the Essential Services Agreement in place, and that has some rules to it. Um, you uh, two we, uh, you have two weeks uh, in which you can uh, decide. And if there hasn't been any movement in that time, calendar weeks, then you can ask the mediator what's called to write themselves out, uh, which is where they then say, I've looked at the two positions and I don't see a path forward. Um, The the way this worked with us was uh, we were brought by the management to informal mediation in late October. Uh, That's when they asked the board uh, to go to informal mediation. I believe it was about a month before they actually agreed to a date to show up for this. Um, And then we had six informal mediation sessions spread over several months. And in that time, they gave us seven pages of proposals um, of which they withdrew four so that was basically one page of proposal for every two mediation sessions and these are long all-day sessions um when we finally got permission to go to formal mediation we went for the first day hoping that we would see a change didn't see a change and so our bargaining team at that point said if this isn't fixed by tomorrow uh, we're going to ask the mediator to write themselves out. At that point, we were presented with, I don't remember the exact number, 25, maybe 30 pages of proposals that afternoon and the next morning. And so what you're really seeing there is that deadlines were the only thing that was driving it. It took, right. till we had to go to the labor board for the ESA. It took till we said there's a deadline on this at mediation. And uh, our bargaining team actually came to us after they showed up with all this paper and said, actually, we'd like to go for an extra day then. Uh, So we gave them permission. They went back and told the other side there was permission and the brakes came back on and that was it. Um, So in the end, we asked the mediator, given what you've seen, do you see a route where we can settle this between us? And the mediator said no. And at that point, then the next stage is, there's two weeks where either side can file uh, for either a lockout or a strike vote. Um, We filed for a strike vote, uh, again, as we were very clear in our members' uh, communications and to management, not in the hopes to go on strike because most strike votes don't lead to a strike, they lead to a settlement. Um, And two weeks later, we did have the strike vote Our mandate had passed two years earlier with 94% approval, the strike vote two years later, 92% approval. And so then after that, there's 72 hours uh, notice period, which we gave, and then we went on strike. Uh, The day after we uh, got our positive strike vote, we were informed that the board was going to introduce a lockout, which as I understand it is very unusual in the sector. Um, it's usually one or the other right yeah exactly so they introduced a lockout on Friday now the reason why they did that was actually uh, quite tactical. Um, I don't think it was very strategic frankly but it was very tactical. Um, we our explicit policy is that we don't uh, strike against the long-term interest of the institution the long-term interests of our students our career interests of our students and that our goal is that any strike action should be a maximum impact, uh minimal long-term damage and immediately releasable and so we were really only planning to strike against uh in class and we we planned our first week of strike for the week before uh, two weeks before reading week and the reason why we did that was that gave us reading week to try and catch up if if we could settle quickly and most strikes in canada in the post-secondary sector are settled within three weeks So um, we did that, but we weren't going to strike against research and we weren't going to strike against, for example, uh, professional practicums, because those are places where like nurses, for example, they have to get a set number of hours in order to qualify. And we felt that it was unreasonable to, uh, you know, that's, that's talking about people's careers. So we, we'd said that we wouldn't strike against either. We got a letter from the university lawyer saying that if we wanted to try a rotating strike, they would lock us out. Um, wasn't a rotating strike. It was trying to not harm the long-term interest of the university. And so that's actually where most of the damage to the university has been coming. And it is significant damage. I I think we're looking at 10 to 15 years recovery from the damage that's happened in the last uh, five weeks. Um, It's been on the attack on grant funding, and it's been on the attack on professional placements. Um, You know, uh, just astounding the degree to which uh, the lockout is harming students who need hours and frankly clients of those students who need hours in therapy and you know it's a it's a little known thing about research you think oh those professors trying to protect their research but in fact a large percentage of the money that comes in on grants is free money to the university that goes back out again as student wages as student support in the humanities and social sciences where i am it's often 90 95% student wages
1: so what are the sticking points at this point like I, we're, you've already just sort of outlined a couple here um, whenever i hear them talking they're they're i know what they're talking about you know how much money you guys make in these kinds of things for the faculty association Are there anything, like any one, two, three specific things that could be just done that would get you back into the classroom in your eyes?
0: Um, A couple of things on that. In terms of the specific stuff that uh, we're trying to settle, both teams have just uh, presented briefs to the mediator, and uh, I don't want to really run into trying to second guess what people have said or, or, you know, how that would work. So I'd, I'd rather not uh, constrain the mediators ability to say, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you want. This is how you can settle. So for that reason, I think, you know, we've been quite clear. We have a series of blogs about what the issues are. Uh, We consider all of the issues to be important, but obviously uh, when you get to this stage, you're not going to settle all of them. Um, It's, Equity, uh, uh, parity and respect has been our main issues. Uh, That means uh, in terms of equity, we've been falling uh, monetarily behind our comparators. Um, In terms of parity, our members, especially our more precarious members have been really left high and dry. For example, in the turn to COVID, no resources for adjusting to COVID for that group. And in terms of respect, Um, There's been a long process of removing faculty members from the kind of professional uh, discipline-based co-governance, collegial governance, that is the norm in the sector. Uh, And so those are our main areas. Uh, The team has put in their brief. uh, Management has put in their brief. And it's really up to the mediator to find the way forward on, on those things.
1: Now, we we have. I've read a couple of things that you've written. One of them is that they claim that you guys won't meet. And it's pretty obvious that uh, there's been times that you've wanted to meet and and they won't meet. And as this episode comes out on this is a Saturday, it's going to come out for our, all our listeners on Thursday. I believe it's Tuesday or Monday or Tuesday. You're supposed to start round two of mediation that is uh, mutually agreed to. I. Uh, um what's what's happened like what's the process there and uh do you actually feel like the university is serious about making a deal when only a matter of a couple of weeks ago they're very quite clearly falsely claiming that uh, they're the ones that want to meet when it's the other way around
0: Well, I think, you know, some of those blog posts were uh, unfortunate in two regards. One, they weren't true. And the other is they were easily disproven. Um, And, you know, I don't think that helps anybody to have a university uh, where we are supposed to be pursuing truth. We are supposed to be capturing nuance to really be. Uh, Not exemplifying that in its day in day out correspondence, Uh, I will say, in fairness, that since then, um, we've seen a lot less of that, Um, you know, there's a little bit of the the kind of um, shading of things, I'm sure it's on both sides as we go back and forth about who said what to whom, but I think that general trend really needs to be uh, promoted and respected. This strike has been, and lockout, has been far more bitter than it needs to be. The issues are simply not that far apart. Uh, Alex Usher, who writes a, a, week, a daily blog on post-secondary, looked at this and said, he just couldn't believe this was in week one, that we were looking at a strike over this. Um, and the thing to remember is, not only has every single university in the country that was on strike at the same time as us managed to settle these strikes, Every single university in Alberta facing exactly the same government headwinds has managed to come up with settlements more or less along the lines of what we proposed uh, a couple of weeks before the strike vote. So, you know, that we went through uh, a period of two or three weeks where I'm not quite sure what the tactical decision was and why it was considered uh, uh, a smart thing to do to try and increase the bitterness and increase the length. Um, you know, not my call, and and I don't know why, uh, but I think things are are now heading in the right direction, and I really do want to encourage that. Uh, had you asked me uh, early last week, uh, would I expect to see a result out of the mediation here? I'm afraid the answer would have been no, uh, because I was coming off the tail of what I'd seen uh, in the weeks previous. You know. Um, but I have to say in the course of the week, now that we've seen uh, what their lawyer has prepared, uh, I've seen our bargaining team try to get its ducks in a row. I, my feeling is that uh, I'm as hopeful about this as I could be, given that it's non-binding and we've seen mediation fail elsewhere. The process is really interesting uh, and it's very different from the previous two rounds of mediations that we did. Uh, This is known as enhanced mediation and um, unlike in other forms of mediation, the main difference is there will be a proposal for a settlement at the end of this mediation, regardless of whether or not we're able to reach agreement. Normally a mediator tries to bring the two sides together, help you see how you can agree. And then, as I said, if they don't, if they can't do that, they say, well, I can't see how you guys are going to agree. In this one, the mediator does the same thing. But then uh, at the end, even if the parties are not able to agree, issues a recommendation saying this is how they should agree, the same way an arbitrator might, except with an arbitrator, you would then have to do uh, what the arbitrator said. Uh, what happens here is both sides then vote on that uh, as, as for ratification. That is the proposal for ratification. Um, There's obviously an asymmetry there. Uh, We have 500 members, uh, all of whom have been uh, going without pay for five weeks now. Um, All of whom, if you look at social media, are desperate to get back in the class and back in the lab. Um, And it's going to take a lot for a group like that to say no, I think it's fair to say. Um, The other side has got about 12 people, uh, all of whom collectively decided to lock us out. Uh, all of whom decided to pursue uh, a no contact policy for three weeks. And now they have to decide whether or not they want to agree and shut things down. The, the more parallel would have been if the executive of the union had had to vote on this, because you know we're the people who made the recommendation to go on strike. But the difference is, or on the other side, if the entire university had to vote whether or not to accept the deal. So it's a bit of an asymmetrical uh, result, but I have to say the things that I've seen look like uh, the management side is taking this seriously um, and that there is uh, an emphasis that we hadn't seen previously to trying to to find routes to compromise. And so it's my hope that that's real and that we'll see that at the mediation table.
1: Now, you kind of mentioned something a minute ago that sort of gave me a good transition to this next question because you talk about the, there's all these members of the faculty who are desperate to get back in the classroom and then it's going up against sort of 12, I'll add the word stiffs in a boardroom sort of, uh, it's a lot easier for them to cast uh, who gives a shit if they, they don't care, right? So. Um, but the, the, the members of the faculty are very much, they seem more members of the public to me. And I, I wanted to ask you, how much does public opinion come into play in something like this? Because the way I, and, and maybe it's not everyone's experience, but the, the way I would anecdotally describe how I've seen strikes go over time, they, they, uh, public opinion tends to be very pro-worker early in a strike. Um, uh, the longer those go, they tend to become less so. And I, uh, at like you talked very much about students being affected. I read a story about nurses being unable to be, be placed in their practicum. These kinds of things have a huge effect on these young people. <sighs> How do you navigate, like, how much of does that public opinion weigh on what you guys, how much, you know, the, the resolve you have in all of this? And do you still feel at that, at this point, that it's still, uh, you know, even those nurses are seeing why you're doing what you're doing, I guess, are still on your side. That's a long question, sorry.
0: I think that it's an excellent question, though. Um, yeah, I. it's interesting in, in uh, labor disputes. So, Very few of us have had much experience um, with labor disputes. I was involved in a strike as a graduate student, and uh, I believe as a summer student uh, working at Roundtree McIntosh. Uh, We have a couple of people who were involved more uh, actively in a few other strikes. Um, But in most cases, we did this in good old academic fashion. We thought we better go prep ourselves for this, we went and found experts, we read up on it. Um, And so we're doing it by the book, because we're book Greek people. Um, What we read there was that um, public opinion has a, a really important impact on job action. And I think this agrees with our experience, in relation to morale, and determination, and fortitude on the picket line. It doesn't necessarily have much of an impact at the the give and take through mediation or the give and take at the table itself it actually reflects more on ourselves and our feelings as communal animals Um, nobody likes to feel that they're out of step with the community beside them and i think that that's super important in the case of faculty members um, because you know at the university of lethbridge for example faculty teach all independent study and directed reading courses. The, the courses that the university brags about is being part of that Lethbridge experience one-on-one research mentorship. We volunteer to teach that. It's never been part of our compensation. Uh, you're, not, you're not given time off for it. You're not given money, nothing. It's always been above and beyond. And that's not even on the table. So people who are doing that have a huge uh, feeling of uh, you know, are we harming our students? Are we harming our research, uh, and our research partners? And then, you know, especially those in the community, uh, how is this impacting the community that we're in? Um, you don't go into academia actually, uh, to get rich. You go into academia because you're interested in teaching, you're interested in research, and you're interested in improving the society around you. And to be on strike and have the community turn, uh, would I think cause the strike to stop uh, just because uh, no professor wants to be on the wrong side of their students or the faculty. You're right. We started with very, very strong public uh, support, both from students and from the community and the business community places where you wouldn't necessarily think traditionally that if there's going to be a conflict, it's going to be between unionized workers and entrepreneurs, for example, small business owners, but it hasn't been like that at all um i think partially because this university uh was born in a city protest uh back in 1968 uh its very first year edmonton tried to intervene reduce the autonomy of the university and they walked in the streets uh, to try and stop that lethbridge is not notorious as a marching in the street kind of place uh and so that's a really big deal that that they feel this way we have a college and a university the first community college in Canada, and, uh, you know, a comprehensive academic research uh, university like Edmonton and Calgary in a city of 100,000 people. And so the people of Lethbridge really, really understand that. Um, There's always an audience for uh, intellectual and cultural activities in Lethbridge. So it wasn't surprising to us. Um, I've been told from people out of town that they've been really amazed at the degree to which that Uh, Support hasn't really softened that much. Obviously, there's people now two weeks after Reading Week worried about how this is going to impact their classes, and correctly so because it's unnecessary that they're looking at this. We have uh, one extra week than more than we should have, uh, even after we agreed on mediation. Obviously, people uh, with uh, practicums uh, that they need for professional designation are extremely concerned about the results of that. Um, But what I keep hearing from people is the very fact that this has got so out of hand is evidence of why it is necessary. Um, Every other university in the province has managed to keep their students in class or in the case of the equally bitter, but much shorter strike at Concordia University, managed to get back to the table, back to a settlement within about nine days. It's only at the University of Lethbridge that uh, supposed government headwinds have stopped us from even talking for weeks. So, you know, um, I, of course, people are getting worried, but we hold weekly town halls with students in the community. And while I will say people are asking correctly pointed questions and they're they're pointing out their troubles and they're pointing out the things we need to concern ourselves with, I've found that on the whole, uh, people both understand what's going on. And while not encouraging us to stay out any longer than necessary, our understanding why this had to happen and the degree to which the last five weeks have, if anything, emphasized that fact.
1: Now, I think the landscape itself for um, these kinds of things a little bit better now, because uh, in the sense of, like, we just had like the, the doctor fight, for example, with the province, right? Here's a group of people that relatively well compensated at least in the perception of the public make pretty good money right but this is this this is this fight they're having and everybody sort of sees that there's more to this than money right before before we move on i just i just need to want to play devil's advocate for one second because there are people out there that it's just about how your salaries right they don't care about any of the other stuff these guys I see what they make and they make better money than I do and why are they upset right and I just want to read from uh, an excerpt from the Bluffbridge Herald from the first of March. um, Says uh, the university said since 2019 2020 it's provincial grant had been cut by more than 20% and as a result U of L has lost $20 million in annual funding from the province. We'll talk about how true or not true that is in a minute. Um, But it went on to talk about the median salaries range between 108,000 and 178,000. And that the the faculty has increased its salary by 34% over the past decade. One, I want to know what truth lies in all of that. And if those are true, what do you say to those people who in the face of that are kind of like, are going to quite clearly just be like, well, suck it up buttercup, I guess, for lack of a better term, right? And know that obviously our listeners are pretty friendly to
0: this, to what you're probably doing, but there are those out there, right? I think that's absolutely, uh, it's, it's a fair comment. I mean, it's a wrong comment, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, but it's absolutely a fair comment. Um, professors do, uh, on the whole, earn, uh, ultimately, tenured professors like me, um A lot of money in any one year. I'm on the Sunshine List, and uh, you know, every time I write my column in the Lethbridge Herald, people start commenting about my salary in the in the in the comments. And um, I guess there's a couple of things about that. The first thing is um, the Sunshine List, and this is where the letter writer in the Herald is really uh, quite incorrect. And frankly, the the Board of Governors at University of Lethbridge has been doing. Uh, us and themselves a disservice by misrepresenting the, the nature of salaries. Um, we have about uh, 500, odd, uh, 500 odd members uh, in our membership. 140 of those, including the senior administrators who are members of the union, but not active, uh, are on the sunshine list. Um, 76% of our members, 438, are not. Uh, they're below that. And, you know, the number of people earning uh, in that high end um, is, in fact, relatively small. Uh, Our biggest number of people earn between zero and ten thousand dollars. Now, that's, of course, because of sessionals who are then taught on a per course basis. Um, But our second biggest number, uh, and this is then full time work in a university, are earning between one hundred and ten and one hundred and twenty K. Uh, the next group we have are in the range from 80 to 110. And sure, these are, these are not small amounts of money. Um, absolutely not. And uh, however, if you compare them, for example, to co- professions that have equal career prep, um, architects, lawyers, doctors, things like that, you'll find that in fact, they're on the far low end of comparable. And even there in a town like Lethbridge, uh, the way that people are recruited for uh, positions at a university is also extremely different from anywhere else. When we do a search, it's an international search. Uh, as you said at the beginning of this, my PhD is from Yale. Uh, I was recruited here from York in England. Uh, my wife's PhD is from the University of Amsterdam. She was recruited uh, from York in England. Uh, the people in my department were recruited from England, from uh, America. Um, you know, we do international searches in a way that is not done in other professions in town uh, for these kind of things. The average starting age at the University of Lethbridge is 40. So people start earning these salaries at age 40. They've only got 25 years left in their career uh, for in terms of earning. And then the other thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize as well is uh, the way salaries are paid. So, you uh, The way, uh, and again, the administration didn't do any favors on this. Uh, They argued that um, over time, if uh, over the last decade, if somebody received all their career progress, kept getting promoted and received the maximum merit, they would have earned 34%. Uh, They'd be paid 34% at the end of the decade more than they were at the beginning. That's inflation. Uh, So what we're talking about is an absolute top performer. And we have a Uh, bar graph on our uh, blog showing this difference. An absolute top performer would not lose money over time compared to inflation. And then we compared it to, so we have an example of somebody who is that, uh, and we compare it to an example of a member of the administration who over the same time has risen through the ranks, and their salary has risen 26% above inflation. Now, I'm not actually complaining about that because that's the norm in most industries. As you get promoted, you get a, a shitty
1: norm, but it is the norm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, as you get promoted, as you get promoted, you get, you know, uh, as your duties increase, you get, you get more money. It doesn't sure. have to be top management, but you know, if you uh, if you start out as uh, I at Roundtree Macintosh, I started out as uh, what my dad used to call a hodaron, uh, and I ended up as the machine foreman. And as you have more responsibility, you know, money sometimes goes up. At our university, that's not how that works. Uh, and, and this is true of many universities. So I'm a full professor. In the last year, in the last decade, I've received full merit or one below full merit uh, every single year. Um, and I, you know, unusually for somebody in English, I brought in over a million dollars in grants. And uh, I haven't received any raises for those specific promotions or work. The way we do it is as you move into an assistant professorship, you're basically the salary bump you would expect because of this new duty gets spread over, in that case, 10 years. Mm. Uh, When you go to associate professor, your maximum career is now 25 years. And they spread the, instead of a bump for, oh, you're a Uh, an associate professor, now you get a higher pay. They gradually increase your pay per year over the 25 years and, and so on to full professor. And so what people don't often realize is what you would expect to see as I've just changed my job. I've got a different salary. Doesn't actually happen. It just rises over time. But I think the main thing is people are really misled by by two things, and unfortunately, again, I think uh, communications from the university haven't been as clear on this as they could be. The sunshine list is the top earning people at the university, and the figures that the university was pushing out included the administrator salaries uh, because they were all. Oh faculty. shit!
1: Really? <laughs> yeah,
0: they're also they're also faculty members, and so. You know, when the number they put out about how much we earn included their salaries. Oh, that's so great. That's so Um, great. The sunshine list is only 25%, including the members of the senior administration who earn above whatever it is, 135. 76% of our members are below that. In many cases, cannot get anywhere close to uh, the sunshine list. And then lastly, they strongly misrepresented the way that careers are done in universities, where we tend not to have a kind of winner-take-all, you get promoted, you grab everything, and your salary jumps kind of promotion system. And I guess lastly to say also, remember, academics tend to start about age 40 in earning. Right.
1: The years oh, I mean, we're friend, our our co-host and good friend, Doctor Robert Alexier, was in school for most of my life, so I know. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, are you? Do you finish, Do you get to work soon? But anyway, yeah, no, I get it. You, it's, yeah. it takes a long time to get uh, to that place. PhDs aren't easy to just land. And you do a lot
0: of you do a lot of fairly low paying work. So, you know, my career between the time uh, I left Toronto and the time I got the job here, I uh, lived as a graduate student in Yale on, you know, whatever money I could find. I took a one year, uh, quite low paying teaching job in Louisiana State. Uh, I taught uh, as a sessional, in essence, for about, I think, about a thousand pounds at York. Um, you know, and so you tend to, my wife and I, while we were doing our graduate studies, moved back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean five times. Um, and we did that not because people were paying us, but because we did it. We learned after a while what we would do is,, um, we, that was before the internet, really. <laughs> oh my God am I old., uh, but we used to pack two suitcases full of books, and then we would go to Walmart on the North American side. And we would go, I always knew we had these blue plates we used to buy because they were cheap. And we'd buy these blue plates, we'd buy some patio furniture off somebody on the equivalent of Kijiji from those days and then set ourselves up. And then when we left, we would just sell it or leave it and do the same thing on the other side. So we used to basically go to Walmart or its European equivalent back and forth each time to try and keep our moving costs to two airplane tickets.
1: Well, and, and this will lead to, into the uh, the next sort of the last topic I want to discuss with you today, because not to mention the fact that like, you know, especially if you're going to go and try to be a professor in a university coming out of high school right now, how many years of debt you're going to go into to pay the tuitions to go to the university you hope to one day teach. at. So uh, I guess that my, the last thing I want to talk about, I said like I wanted to sort of zoom out a little bit and a uh, little broader um, so the one question I want to ask to lead into that, I guess, is you you mentioned a couple of times now that uh, the other universities, faculty associations and the, and the boards were able to come to an agreement, even in the face of this government. But on the flip side, a lot of labor disputes seem to have followed the arrival of the United conservatives. And I'm not going to say that there's maybe necessarily a direct correlation, uh, but the United conservative party has spent a lot of its time defunding university, uh, the post-secondary institutions in Alberta. Does it not seem like they would be loving right now watching you and the, uni- the universities and the faculty associations do du- get out? And is the fight with each other or is it not with the government if, in the end? Because did they not pull $20 million out of the U of L? And how does that not sort of cripple the institution in and of
0: itself? I, I think these are great questions. Um... It's without a doubt that the current government is uh, more hostile to the public sector. I mean, they say they are than previous governments. And it's also without a doubt that uh, the current government's policies in relation to uh, universities has really um, uh, been both crippling and very short-sighted. Alberta is an unusual jurisdiction in that it has two top 200 universities, well, had two top 200 universities uh, in a population of, what, about 4 million people, Um, you know, and if you compare that to many national uh, uh, situations in Europe, for example, uh, we're very unusual to have that density of top quality education in the province. And historically, we've understood it that way for the same reason that the citizens of Lethbridge wanted the University of Lethbridge here. That's how you keep people here. That's how you keep the youth here, how you stop them going to Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal for education and then not coming back. And if we're ever going to diversify our economy, it's going to come from keeping the bright kids who have ideas that normally would show up in Toronto or Vancouver and setting up the companies here, setting up, getting into the business here, going into public sector here uh, and bringing that intelligence and ideas and training with them. Deciding that you're going to slash your university by a quarter in three years is uh, just madness. You wouldn't do that with you wouldn't do it with your food budget. You wouldn't do it with your car uh, payments. You wouldn't do it with your mortgage. It's absolute madness to try and do that here. So, yeah, I suppose um, one inescapable uh, conclusion of that would be that seeing a fight like this is maybe not contrary to their plans. Remember, the people of Alberta through their government were picking fight with healthcare workers as a pandemic began.
1: Hell yeah! So
0: (laughs) so, the thing they love um, this chaos. That was that was widely recognized as a really unusual tactical choice. Um, And that's a great way to put it. uh, So the same thing with universities that they're doing that to us is not surprising. That being said, I think there's a couple of things to realize about this. The first is. The University of Lethbridge Faculty Association has actually always been willing to give back to the university and to help it out in tough times from government previous to. In 2013, there was uh, initially a 7.2% one year rollback, which is huge. Um, And so we gave back uh, a percentage of our salary, a 1% rollback, and we gave up a 1.5% cost of living adjustment. We were the only faculty association in the province to do that. It turned out in the end, it wasn't going to be 7.2. It turned out, I think it was in a range of about 3%. Uh, We never saw that roll back again. In addition, uh, even now, despite the numbers that you're seeing, I mean, the, the, uh, administration have been throwing numbers around like it's a feist song. Uh, you know, it was one, 5, 25, 35, 9, 6, 10, nine, and ten. Um, you know, just impossible 8, to keep 6, track. Eight, six, seven. Of. 5, yeah, 3, it, it actually around. works if you work them out. You can <laughs> do it. Right. It's one, twelve, thirty-four, five, six, nine, and ten. Um, <laughs> it does flow pretty it, good. <laughs> I, I had it stuck in my head for a while. Uh, <laughs> they've been throwing these numbers around like they're feist. But in fact, the University of Lethbridge nationally is known for the strength of its books. And as an example of that, we have what's known as an un- internally restricted fund. And that is the accumulated surpluses. They get bumped to this restricted funds by the Board of Governors. And board policy is that it should be kept at 9 to 12% of total budget um, for many years we'd be running that well above that number. And in fact, uh, my, if my calculations this morning are correct, it's actually at 17% uh, right now. So this is unrestricted cash that can be used for anything. Um, and the gap between the two sides, despite what has been set in uh, by the administration is somewhere around about one and a half percent of total operating budget over spread over six years. And when you are almost twice your minimum uh, res, uh, uh, internally uh, held surplus, um, finding that tiny bit of room to show the respect to your members that you can match what every other university and public sector employer in the province is doing is not really because of the government. It's a decision that you've made that you don't want to uh, share what is in essence a rounding error when you're almost at twice the minimum required uh, buffer uh, in your own cash. So there's basically $35 million of unrestricted money. It's called internally restricted money, but that's the same as me saying, I'm not going to buy shoes for my kids because I've already decided to spend the money on beer. Um, if, If you've got cash sitting around and you're not using it, to soften the blow of the cuts. I think a valid question would be, why are we not using that to soften the blow from the UCP cuts? And if you're not using it to avoid having your students run into all of the troubles that you're running into, I don't think it's a government problem at that point. I think it's a bigger problem has to do with perhaps a board of governors that needs to sit down and look at its priorities and really sit and think, are we continuing a tradition that goes back to 1968 of thinking about our university, the second largest employer in the city as being a valued part of the city and its community and our students or are we thinking of the university as something where uh, there's a kind of management game we get to play or it's important for our CVs or uh, we wanna show that we can be tougher than other universities. And to the degree that they've fallen into that second category, I would say they've fallen out of line with the values of of the University of Lethbridge going back to its beginning. But I think in the last couple of days, we're maybe seeing a restoring of the true values of this university. And I'm really hopeful if this uh, settlement comes through the way the negotiations will go, that we'll be able to try and restore some of the um, uh, goodwill that's been lost over the last several months.
1: I don't know how how you're doing this, but you're so good at leading into the thing that I want to talk about next, because speaking of values of the universities, sort of the final thing I want to ask you today, um, and I don't, I don't want to date you, but I feel like you did it to yourself when you started talking about teaching for however many decades you've done this, right? So right, you did this to yourself, but you've been doing this a long time. You've seen University values evolve and change over that time. We'd all like to, at least at this show, we like to look at university as this place where you go and there's a lot of culture and 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 the development of the of the human mind and the critical thinking and all of these things that go on top of or with learning a skill or a trait or being able to do something. This current government of the, of of Alberta has really leaned into the idea that we need to make people who are ready to work and and it's because, uh, it seems very concrete and cold to the outside mind do you see any merit in the direction of what they're doing how does the direction of this current government compare to how you've seen universities treated in your time and do you in any way agree with this or do you see the problem or do you find it problematic and how so um, do you see that evolving over the next couple of decades? It's a lot.
0: It's a, also a really good question. And I think a fundamental question for uh, university in a modern era. So something I, I study as part of my interest in uh, research communication and the role of the university is the role of the university. Um, as the parent of two kids who've just finished university, Uh, one's gone on to graduate school, the other's uh, just starting in uh, the world of work. Um, I'm really aware of the cost value proposition for parents and for for students. Um, I was a Germanic philologist. I wanted to go to graduate school and do this. Even back then there were very, very few jobs and I was warned. Uh, you got to watch out. Um, when my wife and I got engaged, the first thing my father said was two of you? Uh, that's a, Not a good career choice or a marriage choice, frankly. Um, and so <laughs> I, know, uh, I know how it's, it, it, you can't dismiss the concerns about employability. Uh, most people are not going to become professors And so as interesting as they find their work, and I know they do, uh, in the back of their heads, they have to be thinking, what is it I'm gonna do when I graduate? That being said, uh, as we all know, and indeed in a certain sense, I'm kind of surprised to see conservative governments, not just here, but in the States, really focus on trying to uh, command Uh, how universities should train people. We know that that kind of central planning and command planning for uh, what it is people should be doing uh, generally doesn't work because you tend to underestimate where the real need is going to be and you tend to overestimate where the the lack of need is going to be. What universities do, economically speaking, and why they are a good investment for you if you're looking at Going to if you don't want to be a Germanic philologist, just, just find it interesting. Um, is the training involved in doing that? The the learning how to do the research, the pushing uh, and and learning how to interpret uh, what people are saying, the critical thinking involved are absolutely valuable skills that show up uh, in any profession that uh, that you may choose to do. My father used to always say, uh, you know, when when governments say uh, people need to go to university and universities need to adjust so that they can train people for employment. He would say, I'm the only person in my classes who's actually doing what I was trained to do. He was a particle physicist and there aren't that many. So, you know, if your goal is to use universities to train people to do what they studied, you're only gonna seat a few people because there's just not that many jobs in academia. But if your goal instead is to have a broadly educated uh, society who are able, as part of their social lives, as part of their community lives, as part of their work lives, to say, wait a second, I know how to, for example, interpret this mask mandate. I know how to understand uh, what it means to see uh, COVID rates rise, and I work at Big Brother, or I work at the gas station, or I work at Frito-Lay, um, or I'm the president of a university. Uh, it's that kind of breadth, that, that ability is a valuable, valuable social skill, because if you don't have it, you end up with the opposite, which is people following, quote, the science, but not the scientists. Uh, people who thinking that you can read the introduction to a science article and understand one that you saw somewhere without any kind of knowledge of the nature of the field and the questions that they're asking. Um, I think the more you're in university, the more you realize you can only know about the fields that you've actually studied. Uh, People often say to me, you know, you're a professor, what do you think about X? Uh, And I almost always say I I don't know. All I know is what I read in the paper. And I wouldn't dare, um, you know, try to form an opinion without deepening myself in that field. University is what teaches you to do that. So I think it's, a, it's fundamentally a, a misunderstanding of the value that universities bring to a society to say, wait a second, uh, you haven't produced... more, I don't know, bankers or 25% more uh, HR professionals. Uh, We have other systems that do that. The goal of a university is to produce people who can become bankers or HR people or university presidents or Germanic philologists and nevertheless understand Canada's place in the world, Alberta's place in Canada and Lethbridge's place in alberta and canada and the world
1: it's a great 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 place to end we should do another podcast sometime on how uh, important access to education is because i think that's the other uh, big issue in all of this is that uh it becomes such a you either go into a life of debt or or you have to be pretty elite to start to get into these institutions and uh um, education should be friggin' free so that we don't churn uh, out anti-science maniacs anymore. But anyway, Mr. O'Donnell, I really want to appreciate. I really want to thank you for coming. I appreciate you being here. Uh, I know, especially with everything you got going on, what a time to uh, to be dealing with uh, an isolation period as well on top of that. So I hope you're you're handling that okay. I hope you're feeling better. Uh, i hope everything works out with the the faculty association and you guys get back in the classroom because i know and i be, and i know my our listeners believe that uh you guys really truly do care about those stu- the students and and their well-being and this is about the long-term health of the university so thank you so much for taking the time this morning to be with
0: us thank you very much it's been very enjoyable
1: Appreciate it, Mr. O'Donnell. Thank you for coming. Now it's that time in the show, you guys, where we thank those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for. And I just want to say thank you to Farah Chaudry, to Nicolo DiNicola, to Chris Sterwold, to Dave Miller, to Darius Beargard, and to the Big Red Machine. You guys keep us going. To other patrons and listeners, couldn't do it without you guys. Um, have a great few days into your weekend. I know it's a thursday in your world so uh, enjoy that and we'll see you guys in a week take care